I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Barberton, Ohio. Barberton is a suburb of the Akron metropolitan area in Summit County with a population of just over 25,000. In January of 1890, at the height of Ohio's industrial development, O.C. Barber and three Akron associates purchased 550 acres of farmland. The acreage was laid out as the new town of Barberton. Developers used Lake Anna, a natural geological lake left behind from the last ice age, as the center of the town with a 20-acre park surrounding it for the residents to enjoy. Developers specifically designed the city to have residential living around the lake with industry located on the outer perimeters to allow for planned growth. Barber was a pioneer industrialist and a visionary businessman who took over his father's match company, creating the Diamond Match Company, and he became known as America's Match King. He stimulated local growth by moving his match operations to Barberton in 1894, and the city entered a boom period of development. Like so many cities with a large manufacturing base, Barberton absorbed substantial job losses in the 1970s and 1980s. Today, it is a city undergoing rebirth and rejuvenation. The commercial base has stabilized, residents are restoring the beautiful old Queen Anne homes, and new jobs have been created. The community has seen multi-million dollar investments in schools, infrastructure, and recreational facilities, including parks. In its early days, Barberton grew so rapidly that it earned the nickname the Magic City, a moniker that lasts to this day. But in 1998, the city didn't seem so magical for one family that was nearly destroyed in the wreckage of a brutal murder that took their matriarch from them. At approximately 8 a.m. on Sunday, June 7, 1998, April Montgomery was awakened by banging on her front door. She and her husband were still in bed as their six-year-old daughter, Brooke, had spent the night with her grandmother who lived nearby. April opened the door to find a swollen-faced and traumatized Brooke, who was wearing her grandmother's pink silk robe that was caked in blood. She had been brought home by her grandmother's neighbor. The crying child told her mother that grandma had been killed. April's husband raced to his mother-in-law's house to see what was going on. There, he found 58-year-old Judith Johnson had been brutally murdered. She was face down on the living room floor covered in blood. He immediately called 911 and reported that his mother-in-law had been stabbed to death. Police rushed to the scene, a modest tan-colored house with white trim in the 100 block of Summit Street. Brooke was taken to the hospital for evaluation, where it was revealed that she had been struck with an object, strangled, cut, raped, and left for dead. It was a miracle she survived. Her grandmother had not been so fortunate. She too had been raped, but she had also been severely beaten and strangled. Judy Johnson had worked as a waitress most of her life and had two daughters, April and Melinda. From each daughter, she had grandchildren whom she loved dearly. Brooke was Judy's only granddaughter, and the two were very close. In retirement, Judy enjoyed playing bingo and visiting with family who lived nearby. During her life, she had experienced domestic violence, which actually left her legally blind. 
One eye had no vision and the other eye had very limited vision. Someone attacking these two very vulnerable people was unfathomable. Barberton police learned that Brooke had attended a cousin's birthday party on Saturday, the day before the murder. Brooke wanted to stay longer at the party, so she asked her grandmother if she could spend the night at her house. Judy often babysat Brooke, who had spent the night there many times, and naturally, Judy said yes. After the party, the two went to Judy's and watched a TV show. After the show ended, Judy put Brooke to bed. Sometime in the night, Brooke woke up to the sound of screaming. When she left her bedroom, she saw a man standing in the kitchen over her grandmother. She then ran back to her bedroom where she hid under the covers. Judy's attacker then came for Brooke. The little girl was hit with something and lost consciousness. When Brooke regained consciousness in the middle of the night, she was naked. She then put on her grandmother's pink robe and went out to the living room. According to a 2016 episode of Dateline NBC, Brooke found Judy on the floor nearly unconscious and vomiting blood. Brooke then lost consciousness again herself. She awoke again at dawn and tried to wake up her grandmother but couldn't. By that time, Judy had died. Brooke needed help, but she couldn't find the phone. She pressed the locator button on the phone base and the handset sounded from the backyard. The little girl went outside, found the phone, and made two phone calls, but nobody picked up. Police retrieved the message Brooke left on one of her friend's answering machine. According to an article on news.com.au by journalist Matt Young, Brooke's message said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but my grandma died, and I need somebody to get my mom for me. I'm all alone. Somebody killed my grandma. Now, please, would you get a hold of me as soon as you can? Bye. Now, we wanted to give you a little bit of context because we want to play this for you, where you hear this little girl with this sweet little girl's voice. This is from a YouTube channel called Conviction Film, which was posted in September of 2009. Kath, when I first heard this, I was so impressed and saddened by how poised this little girl was. So after leaving this message and having no luck with her calls, Brooke left her grandma's house and went to the home of one of her grandma's neighbors named Tanya. According to journalist Matt Young, Judy knew Tanya and the two had coffee on occasion and had played bingo together. Tanya also had three little girls who were friends with Brooke. After hearing a knock, Tanya opened the door to a crying Brooke. Her face was swollen and her pink robe was caked with blood. Tanya decided it was best to drive the terrified child home to her parents. They got to Brooke's house at around 8 a.m. and banged on the door. Brooke was crying and said to her mom, Grandma's dead. After Brooke's father called 911 and Brooke was taken to the hospital, she was interviewed by police and social workers. Thankfully, she had no memory of the attack. Thankfully. Yeah. When asked if she knew who did this, Brooke told them the same thing she told her mother that morning. Her attacker looked like her uncle Clarence. When neighbor Tanya was interviewed by police, she told them that Brooke repeatedly said it was her uncle Clarence who did this. Her uncle Clarence, 
was Clarence Elkins, and he was married to Brooke's mother's sister, her aunt Melinda. Melinda and Clarence lived in Magnolia, which was about 40 miles away from Barberton. Deputies from the Carroll County Sheriff's Department showed up at their door that morning. Melinda answered and deputies asked her to step outside. They said Clarence, a 36-year-old press operator, needed to be taken in for questioning in the stabbing of his mother-in-law. Melinda asked, is my mother okay? And the deputy responded, no. And that was how Melinda learned that her mother had been murdered and that her niece said that her husband Clarence had done it. At the time, Melinda had been married to Clarence for almost 17 years. They had been high school sweethearts. And Melinda told officers that it's impossible Clarence was home. He could not have killed her mother. Melinda said Clarence would never have done such a thing and questioned what police were trying to do and said they needed to look for the right person. Clarence was handcuffed and taken into custody for questioning. At the time of Judy's funeral, which was five days after the murder, there was already a rift in the family because Melinda was insisting on defending Clarence. Judy was remembered as a sweet woman whom neighbors referred to as Grandma Judy, and they also remembered how much she loved animals and took in strays. Before her Pomeranian was stolen, they laughed about how she would walk around the neighborhood in a stroller. At the time of her death, Judy had a cat, but it went missing after the murder. Judy was described as five foot three and 90 pounds with thick glasses, but her small stature didn't mean she had any trouble expressing her opinion on matters. Her grandchildren gave her the greatest joy and she loved seeing them. Judy was laid to rest at Greenlawn Cemetery with a grave marker that read, An Angel Forever. On Monday, June 8th, one day after the early morning murder, Clarence Elkins appeared in court. According to an article by Robert Hoyles, Regina Brett, and George Davis of the Akron Beacon Journal, Clarence was charged with aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, rape, and felonious assault for Judy and Brooke. When Clarence was asked if he understood the charges, he said, yes, but I didn't do it. According to the article, Clarence Elkins lived in a ramshackle trailer in rural Carroll County and had two prior DUI convictions. In 1990, eight years prior to Judy's murder, he had reportedly been convicted of domestic violence against Melinda and served 10 days in jail. It was reported that one of Judy's neighbors said that Judy told her that Clarence had threatened her. The article provided no details as to the exact nature of the threat, but Judy was reportedly told that her neighbors would take care of her. It appeared that her neighbors had helped her out with food and rent occasionally when she was short of money. One neighbor said that they had given Judy suitcases to borrow about a month prior to her murder because she made a trip to New York for a taping of the Maury Povich show. As it turned out, Judy and Melinda had been interviewed as part of a series on the Hicks Clinic. In an article written by journalist Andiel Gross of the Akron Journal, it was explained that in the 1950s and 60s, couples were unknowingly adopting children from the black market in Georgia. Dr. Thomas Hicks ran a clinic that catered predominantly to poor copper mining families, and he was posthumously accused of illegally selling babies. And Kath, I read the population of the town was under 3,000. Very, very small town. So some mothers reportedly knew their babies were being adopted out, you know, like maybe they got pregnant out of wedlock or whatever. 
but other mothers were told that their babies had died at birth. So Dr. Hicks allegedly sold the children for $1,000 to couples who would not otherwise qualify through traditional channels. So for example, people who were poor, people who did not own their own home, people who were divorced, that kind of thing. And can I just pop in really quickly? Sure. In 2024, that $1,000 would today be $10,000. And any baby is worth $10,000. Any baby is worth more than $10,000. <laughs> For show. Melinda was one of these babies, but she and Judy didn't realize that they were in this, you know, nefarious adoption situation for 30 years. What Judy said was that she went through an intermediary to try to get a baby. And it wasn't explained why she couldn't. It wouldn't be surprising to me if it was because they didn't own a home. Anyway, they were told once you receive a call, you were to get to Georgia within 12 hours. You were to walk in the front door, sign the birth certificate and head out the back door. They were warned you were to get out of town with your new baby as quickly as possible. And I am sure the implication was we don't want the birth mother changing her mind. So in February of 1963, Judy got that call. Judy paid $1,000, a price that Dr. Hicks said would cover the cost of the biological mother's keep. This story broke in 1997, Kath, and I thought it was interesting how it broke, and I'm just going to do a side note for a second. There was a woman who was told, and I can't remember her name, she was told by her parents that she and her sister were adopted, and she was told at a very young age, so she knew this information. As she became a teenager, she had seen her birth certificate as well as her sister's, and she noticed that both of her adoptive parents were listed as her biological parents. And she thought that was odd because they came from separate parents and all that kind of stuff. She starts doing research in high school in the library, then as a 20-something-year-old goes to Georgia to try to find her birth parents, and she can't find them. She dials in a probate attorney to help her do the research. And they uncover this information that this Hicks clinic has a bunch of babies, like Dr. Hicks had signed a bunch of birth certificates. Anyway, it became suspicious. So she kind of blows this wide open in 1997. So here we are in 1998. Judy and Melinda are now on the Maury Povich show. And so there were a bunch of national television shows related to the adoption story. The article by Matt Young said that their appearance on the Maury Povich show reportedly caused a riff with others who were adopted out from the same clinic. And truthfully, it was not explained to me why. I didn't know why there was they a riff. They didn't explain it to you directly? They didn't. Nobody called me, man. Nobody freaking called me. Nobody emailed me nothing. Anyway, so here we are in the spring of 1988, two months before Judy's murder, when the Maury Povich segment was taped. Now it wound up airing after her murder. But in this article by Andiel Gross, Melinda said that she and her mother had received strange phone calls after going public with the Hicks baby controversy and their role in it. The article provided no elaboration on the calls, but Melinda was insistent on Clarence's innocence and was perhaps suggesting another avenue for the police to pursue. Eleven months after the murder, Trial started in May of 1999. Journalist Dennis McEnany of the Akron Beacon Journal said that in opening statement, Assistant Prosecutor Michael Carroll said Judy Johnson died of strangulation and blunt force trauma, but he admitted that no evidence was collected from Judy's home or Clarence Elkins' home that tied the defendant to the murder scene. 
He said Clarence did not leave fingerprints and blood at the scene. Instead, he took the murder weapon and himself and went back home. He pointed out that the murder weapon had never been found. The defense attorney, Lawrence Whitney, said that Elkins could not have been at Judy's house at the time of the murder because he was at home in Magnolia, an hour's drive away, and he had 19 witnesses who saw him there. Defense attorneys pointed out that police seized hundreds of pieces of evidence from Judy's home, the Elkins home, and the Elkins vehicle, but not one piece of evidence linked him to the crime scene. The defense attorney also told jurors that DNA testing on the pubic hairs and head hairs found on Judy did not belong to his client. Just a side note, Kath, these hairs were tested in 1998, and I believe it was testing through mitochondrial DNA, which follows sort of like the genetic line of the mother. So it wasn't as sophisticated as the testing that we do today. The defense attorney said the charges stemmed from a case of mistaken identity. On the first day of trial, the prosecutor presented testimony from a woman named Patricia who described herself as a longtime friend of Judy's. Patricia testified that a few weeks before her death, Judy had confided in her that Clarence Elkins had phoned her with a threat. In the phone call, Clarence said to Judy that he would see her dead before she could break up him and his wife. Patricia also testified that Melinda had left her husband 30 to 45 times and moved in with Judy during the dozen years before Judy's death. Patricia said Melinda stayed for periods of two days to two weeks. It was reported that Patricia also told the jury that Clarence had pointed a gun at Judy's face and said, you're not breaking us up. Patricia said that Melinda would not allow Judy to call the police over the incident. Dr. Marvin Platt, the county medical examiner, described Judy's injuries. He confirmed Brooks' rape and testified that Judy had broken facial bones and had been bludgeoned and raped herself. Judy had defensive wounds to her hands and torn nails, obviously having put up a struggle. The medical examiner placed the time of her death between 2.30 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. The biggest day of the trial came when the prosecution called now seven-year-old Brooke to the stand. According to journalist Dennis McEnany, Brooke testified that she got out of bed when she heard the noise. She went to the kitchen and peeked inside. She told the jury she saw a man with something in his hand, which was long and brown and silver. She saw her grandmother lying on the dining room floor. Brooke then ran back to her bedroom and the man followed. According to Brooke's testimony, the man punched her on the cheek. Brooke told the jury that when the punch landed, she could see the man's face and described his expression as mean. According to the article, most of her answers were, I don't know or I don't remember, but she specifically identified her uncle Clarence as the man who did this. Also testifying for the prosecution was neighbor Tanya, who confirmed that when Brooke knocked on her door that morning looking for help, Brooke said that her uncle Clarence was the one who committed the crimes. Melinda Elkins also testified. Trial transcripts show that Melinda told the jury she fell asleep on the couch but saw her husband around 2.45 a.m. Kath, it turns out that they had had a bit of a fight that night, and so he left at 11 p.m. to go out to bars. So he returns at 2.45, and she says he took off his jacket, put it on the coat rack, and asked her if she was upset with him, and she said yes. Then he began telling her who he saw at the dugout, 
which was the last, you know, local bar he had visited. She said they talked a bit, and when he went to bed, she estimated it was about 3.10 a.m. One of their children was sick, so Melinda decided to wait up to see if the little kid needed some care. She had been actually dozing on the couch. She said she did the dishes, watched a movie, and fell asleep on the couch again. Their child woke her up several times during the night. One of those times was at around 3.45. She testified that around 3.45, she awoke and believed her husband was in bed, but didn't specifically see him. Is that kind of like the boogeyman where I thought you were in the bed in Austin and you weren't? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think she saw a hump, at least. (laughs) I thought I did, too. I know. Isn't that funny? It was was one of your many pillows. Our eyes deceiving. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I do sleep with a thousand pillows. Judy testified that between 4.30 and 5, she went back into her bedroom to get a sheet because their son was running a fever and she saw her husband in bed. She did, however, admit that there was a hallway next to their bedroom that led out the back door. At 8 a.m., Judy went and got a blanket for herself in her bedroom and again saw her husband in bed. Clarence eventually got up around 9.45 because he received a phone call. Under cross-examination by Prosecutor Michael Carroll, Melinda said she and her husband had disagreements from time to time, but had a normal marriage. She acknowledged that she had left her husband to live with another man for about six weeks prior to her mother's death and had left him on other occasions. She also acknowledged that he had left her in the past. Then the prosecutor read portions of letters written by Judy. In one, Judy said that Clarence had left Melinda with no money, almost no food, and no water. In another letter, Judy wrote that Melinda should not bring Clarence around and that he will try anything he can to ruin her life. Prosecutors argued that Judy and Clarence had a nasty relationship and he was tired of his meddling mother-in-law. Fed up, he drove 40 miles to settle the score. Many other witnesses took the stand for the defense, saying that they saw Clarence at various bars in the early morning hours of June 7th. But the defense attorney knew that Brooks' testimony had a deep impact on the jury. The defense pointed out that the only witness was six years old when a very traumatic event occurred that may have clouded her judgment. She did not get a good look at her attacker and somehow conflated him with her uncle. He also pointed out that in her phone message to her friend, Brooks said, somebody killed my grandma. She did not say, my uncle killed my grandma. The defense argued that her identification was a mistake. You know, Cap, this is very difficult because the defense is trying to impeach a six-year-old who had great emotional sway over the jury. Right. So that's really tough. Every family member supported Brooke and ostracized Melinda, whom they believed supported her husband at the expense of her mother and niece. Almost one year to the day of Judy's murder, Clarence Elkins was found guilty on all charges by the jury. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole until 2054. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. 
Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users in 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Melinda, still believing in her husband's innocence, made a list of people she thought could have done something like this. According to the YouTube channel Real Crime, when they interviewed Melinda, she said that shortly after her husband was incarcerated, she found out how miraculous DNA testing could be and began looking at sex offender databases for people in her area who could have committed the murder. She made the decision to collect DNA for testing. And so, Kath, what she did is she became totally obsessed. And her sons, I believe her sons were 8 and 10. I'm not 100% sure, but I think they were 8 and 10 when their father was arrested for the murder. They knew what their mom was doing and they knew she was sort of like on this mission. And so the entire family was sort of on this like fearful high alert. Like she believed perhaps this person who killed her mother is going to come for them, that kind of thing. Anyway, what she did is she did research and she looked at sex offender databases and she would sort of, I'm going to call it stock for lack of a better term, these people to find out where they hung out. And then she would go and just insinuate herself into their life. So she said, for example, she would go to a bar where she knew they would go and start flirting, maybe like run her fingers through their hair to collect hair samples. Right. Having a hair catch on a ring or something like that. Exactly. She said that she collected cigarette butts and beer bottles, all this kind of stuff. She would bring this home, put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in her freezer. That's crazy. I know. And she said she was afraid. Her kids were afraid. But this is what she did. I'm also going to argue that she made her kids afraid by doing this. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. So what happens is she has a freezer full of this like, you know, detritus, stranger, (laughs) (laughs) detritus, your $5 word. (laughs) Anyway, so she has a freezer full of like strangers DNA, but she doesn't know what to do from there. So she went online, found a group called Truth and Justice and reached out to them. And they referred her to this guy named Martin Yant. And he was a former investigative journalist turned private eye. According to Real Crime, Yant told her to go back to square one and find out why they focused on her husband. Using a public records request, Yant got copies of the police reports. And in the police report, he saw a description of a bloody fingerprint on a door jam. And he did a second public records request for the identity of the owner of the print. And he was told that the print was destroyed in the process of trying to lift it. Which happens. Which does happen when, when, you know, when you're trying to like lift blood. But anyway, so that's what he was told. So Yant was interviewed by Real Crime. And he said that Melinda went back to the crime scene at his urging and searched the bushes around where Brooke found the phone. If you remember, she used the phone base, you know, she pressed the locator button on the phone base. And if you don't know what that is, you can ask your parents. (laughs) Anyway, so Melinda goes back to the house. Now, 
what I do know is that Judy didn't own this house. This house had a landlord. This is now roughly three years after the murder. So I have no idea if somebody's renting it. I don't know the details. But Melinda went back to the backyard to the rough location where she believed Brooke had found the phone. Near that location, she starts digging around in the bushes and she finds a C-clamp. And she was wondering if that was the murder weapon. Okay, I had to look up what a C-clamp was. I had no idea. It's literally what woodworkers use to clamp two pieces of wood together. And so it's literally shaped like a C. And the reason this is important is because the coroner had said that Judy had rectangular shaped imprints on her body from the beating that she took, but it didn't mean that something that was rectangular hit her. He said, if you have a pipe or a baseball bat, something like that, it's going to leave an imprint, like some type of bar. Anyway, so Melinda wondered whether the C-clamp was the murder weapon. Here's the thing, Kath. I read nothing, and I mean nothing, about whether she ever submitted the C-clamp for testing, turned it over to the police. I read nothing about that, so I don't know what happened. She also found the skeletal remains of Judy's cat. Oh. It was found in the bushes with a string of Christmas lights wrapped around its neck. So Yant, the investigator, is now like, oh, that's freaking creepy. That's really pathological. And how sad because the cat was killed in June and they still had Christmas lights out. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that. I just thought of it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so Yant was like, this is crazy. This guy, whoever did this is pathological, blah, 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 blah. So Yant now wants to speak to Brooke and Melinda and Brooke's mom, April, like poor April, who opened her door to her bloody daughter at 8 a.m. on the morning of the murder. Melinda and April hadn't spoken since the murder. So it had been roughly three years. April was very upset and hurt that Melinda was believing her husband over April's daughter, Brooke. So. What happens is Yant goes, hey, we need to talk to Brooke. That's the only way out of this. So Melinda and Yant show up to April's house unannounced. And what happens is April opens the door and she's shocked to see her sister. And she's standing there with this man that she doesn't have any idea who he is. So she turns around and goes to shut the door and then stops, turns back towards her sister opens the door and gives her a hug and the two of them start crying because they had been good friends. They were, you know, this murder obviously drew a line in the sand, but they had been good friends. Eventually, April and her husband give permission for Yant to speak with Brooke. Brooke, who is now nine, told Yant that she wasn't sure if the killer was her uncle Clarence. And she told the police the same thing back then. According to an article by Kathleen Ramsland in CrimeLibrary.org, April allowed Brooke to be hypnotized in order to help her recall more specific details. And really quickly, Kathleen Ramsland rings a bell. She, okay, if it is the same Kathleen Ramsland, and I believe it is, she is a serial killer expert. She's a psychologist and I think that she was connected to Brian Koberger. That's and the, where the name's from. Yes. Okay. And, and I, if I recall correctly, he was somehow either in a class of hers or mentored by hers. He was somehow connected or to her. Or obsessed with her. 
There no, was, I, oh, like you think they were. Uh, I think it was more of like an academic commission. You're right. You're right. I remember that. Yeah. And then he killed people and she's like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so under hypnosis, Brooke supposedly recalls more details. And she said that she remembered her attacker's eyes were brown. Since Clarence's were blue, this raised Melinda's hopes that he could possibly get a new trial. Melinda got help from attorney Elizabeth Kelly, who took the deposition, which is a videotaped statement under oath, where Brooke recanted her testimony. According to an article in the Akron Beacon Journal by journalist Phil Trexler, three years after the conviction, in May of 2002, the defense made a motion for a new trial. Not only did Brooke recant her testimony, but the defense put forth a person they suspected of committing the murder. According to Real Crime, Melinda was previously sent a video of a friend's wedding. In the video, her mom Judy was dancing with a man who was around 30 years younger. Melinda was told that this man had a crush on her mother and had asked her out on a date. Judy reportedly laughed and very politely rebuffed his advances. When investigator Yant obtained police video of the funeral, this man appeared to Yant to have scratches on his face. Yant, Melinda, and April went to the suspect's workplace and confronted him. He said he liked Judy and wouldn't have hurt her. They asked him to submit a DNA sample, and he refused. In her videotaped statement under oath, Brooke identified this man, who resembled her uncle, as her attacker. After the motion was made for a new trial, the judge denied it without holding an evidentiary hearing where he actually would have heard live testimony on the issue. Clarence's attorneys appealed, saying they should have at least taken live testimony, including Brooke recanting her testimony and the possible suspect. In the Court of Appeal opinion, they said there were several points that were critical. Brooke's statements were inconsistent from the trial and her deposition. They said that Clarence's attorney was also leading Brooke through her tone during the deposition. And the prosecutor was not invited to the deposition nor did they have any opportunity to cross-examine Brooke. But most importantly, the trial judge who made this decision was the same judge who presided over Clarence Elkin's first trial, and he believed that Brooke's testimony in the first trial was very credible and did not believe the same thing when he saw a video of her deposition testimony. So, Kath, as you can imagine, Melinda and Clarence were super bummed their lawyers were super bummed because the primary person who got Clarence convicted has now recanted the testimony, but the judge is not giving them a new trial. And according to Ohio law, if you recant your testimony, it needs to be viewed suspiciously. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. Anyway, so one of the things they also asked for was an order that this new suspect of theirs submit DNA. And the judge was like, no, we're not going to do that. So Melinda Elkins created a website to bring attention to her husband's case and to solicit donations to do DNA testing. And Kat, they were able to raise thousands of dollars through the website. And a lot of that money came from various family members who now supported Clarence. Mark Godsey was also contacted. He was a professor at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, and he helped form the Ohio Innocence Project. So in the few years since the murder, DNA testing had even become more sophisticated. 
with the capability of the YSTR testing. And we are certainly no experts. However, what we understand is that STR stands for short tandem repeats. And the Y is because it's for the male chromosome. So YSTR allows scientists to look at repeated sequences of genetic material on the male chromosome, which makes the population of suspects even smaller than prior DNA analysis. So the goal of Judy's family was to test evidence from the crime scene that had not been tested previously. This included evidence from Judy's body cavities, Brooke's underwear, and skin cells from under Judy's fingernails. In 2004, Clarence Elkin's lawyers at the Ohio Innocence Project cooperated with the prosecutor's office to send the evidence to a nationally recognized forensic lab. In an excerpt from his book entitled Blind Injustice, Mark Godsey wrote, Since Judy was not sexually active at the time of her murder, any male DNA inside had to come from the man who raped and murdered her. The same unknown male profile was found on both the grandmother's vaginal swab and the young girl's underwear. After testing, Clarence Elkins was excluded as a contributor. Also excluded was the young man who was roughly 30 years younger than Judy who had asked her on a date. As it turns out, he wound up voluntarily giving a DNA sample. So now, armed with this evidence, we know that Clarence could not have been the murderer. So his family's all excited. Brooke has recanted. We know that it's not Clarence's DNA. So now his attorneys go forward and they're like, oh, we are now going to get a new trial. In 2005, Clarence's lawyers made another motion for a new trial, thinking that they had struck gold with the DNA results. The judge denied the motion for a new trial. According to an Associated Press article in the Cincinnati Inquirer, the judge ruled that the possibility that another man may be involved would not overcome the evidence presented in the original trial. Even if a jury had this new evidence, the court said, it would not be sufficient to change the outcome of the trial. And one of the things that was interesting, Kath, was that in his book, Mark Godsey basically said that he thought the prosecution and the judge didn't understand the magnitude of the DNA evidence because the prosecution argued in his motion that some sort of innocent contamination must have occurred before or after the crime. And he even suggested that perhaps a male juror opened the evidence bag and touched Brooke's underwear and, you know... Like when nobody was looking, he snuck a... Or something, yeah. And so, like, so basically, Godsey was critical of the prosecution for coming up with these theories that were pretty outlandish, especially in light of the fact that none of the evidence bags had been tampered with. <laughs> but he said in hindsight, he realized, like, they really believed what they were saying. They just didn't understand the magnitude of the DNA evidence. Clarence Elkins' family was devastated at the ruling. Melinda really believed her husband would be exonerated. She now knew the only way to prove her husband's innocence was to find the killer herself. 
Then one day, Melinda was reading a newspaper and saw an Ohio man had been convicted of molesting his three young daughters and was sentenced to prison. A name in the article stopped Melinda cold. It was Judy's neighbor, Tanya. This was the neighbor whose door Brooke had knocked on the morning that she found her grandmother dead and the one who drove Brooke home without ever calling the police. She was also the one who testified that Brooke told her that Uncle Clarence was the perpetrator. According to the article Melinda was reading, the Ohio man was the common-law husband of Tanya and lived with her and her three girls at the time Judy was murdered. Melinda knew this was the killer. His name was Earl Mann, and as luck would have it, he was in the Mansfield Correctional Institute, the same prison as her husband. Melinda knew she needed to get his DNA. According to Real Crime, Melinda created an alias named Jane Lee and began writing to Mann. She was hoping he would respond to her letters. With a licked envelope, she would have his DNA. Unfortunately, he never responded. Melinda visited her husband in prison and told him what she knew. She asked if he knew Earl Mann. Clarence said yes, that they happened to be in the same pod together. Melinda told Clarence he needed to get a sample of Mann's DNA. According to court records, Clarence noticed that Mann left a cigarette butt on a table in the recreational area. He asked another prisoner to watch the cigarette butt while he obtained toilet paper in order to recover the cigarette without tainting any DNA evidence. Clarence then spent the next two weeks illicitly attempting to get a plastic bag through the prison black market so that he could smuggle the cigarette out of prison for his attorney to test, which he eventually did. We read that he was able to smuggle the cigarette out by mailing it to his attorney. Earl Mann's DNA matched the DNA found at the scene of the Johnson murders. Clarence Elkin's family and attorneys were overjoyed, but they had been burned twice on new trial motions. This was their last hope. In an abundance of caution, Clarence's attorneys, Janet DeLoach and Mark Godsey, reached out to the Ohio Attorney General, Jim Petro, before taking the evidence to the Summit County prosecutors. The AG's office said they would look into the matter. When they did, they agreed that Clarence Elkins was an innocent man. Clarence's attorneys then went to the county prosecutor's office with their evidence. The attorney general asked Summit County prosecutors not to oppose releasing Clarence on bond until a hearing was held seeking a new trial. When the attorney general did not receive an appropriately timed response, he actually held a press conference of their own announcing their support for Clarence Elkins' immediate release and new trial. I love it. I do too. The prosecutor's office eventually admitted that Elkins was innocent and said they were just doing a thorough investigation before releasing him. On December 15, 2005, a Summit County judge vacated Clarence Elkins' 1999 convictions and he was released from prison after having served over six years. He told Brooke that none of this was her fault, and that he knew she had been manipulated. That was very gracious of him to do that. Oh, totally. And I've seen interviews of her on the shows that we were referencing, like Dateline and Real Crime. And you can tell she is, oh gosh, what's the right word? Like she knows what happened should not have happened. But one of the things that Brooke says as an adult being interviewed 
is that she did tell people that this guy looked like Clarence and that he sounded like Clarence. And that turned into this was Clarence. And so in one of the interviews, she said that she let police know that she wasn't sure. And she was told, I believe it was by prosecutors, but I'm not 100% sure that Clarence Elkins was a bad man and she was doing a good thing. I mean, honestly, this poor girl. Interestingly, phone records showed the time Brooke made the call to her friend using her grandma's phone. And phone records also showed the time Brooke's father called 911 after finding Judy dead. It was estimated that Brooke was at Tanya's for approximately 45 minutes on the morning of the murder before being returned home to her parents. Brooke said Tanya did not let her inside, but made her wait outside on the porch. Tanya did not go to check on Judy or call 911, despite the condition that Brooke was in. And now we know why. Yeah. By the time Brooke was returned home to her parents, that somebody, as Brooke referred to in the message to her friend, remember she said, somebody killed my grandma, turned into Uncle Clarence killed my grandma. But because Brooke does not have a clear recollection of the events of the morning, she cannot say what she and Tanya talked about. And according to the previously mentioned article by Kathleen Ramsland on crimelibrary.org, Tanya later admitted that man had come home in the early morning hours after the murder with deep scratches on his back. He claimed he'd been with like a wild woman. When Brooke came to the door the next morning, he reportedly grew very angry and insisted that she not be allowed inside. So, Kath, how crazy is it that this poor little six-year-old chose the house where her attacker supposedly was? That's crazy. I know. Unfortunately, after Clarence was released, his marriage to Melinda did not survive. Each have since remarried and Clarence will be forever grateful for Melinda's ceaseless efforts in freeing him. In 2006, Clarence received a $1,075,000 settlement from the state of Ohio for wrongful imprisonment. According to a July 15, 2011 edition of Prison Legal News, the city of Barberton wound up paying $5.25 million to settle a lawsuit on behalf of four police officers who had investigated the case. They were found to have ignored evidence implicating Earl Mann in the crime. The settlement was shared by Clarence, his wife, and their two adult sons. And I'm assuming a lot of attorneys. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure most of it was taken by attorneys. In fact, I read something that Clarence and his wife each got about $600,000. Which the sons probably got even less. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't even read that. Yeah. But yeah, it sounds like, oh, yeah, cha-ching. But it's crazy how... How fast it goes. That stuff slips through your fingers yep. and is given to other people and blah, 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 blah. As far as like the $5.25 million goes against the four officers, this was a federal case where he alleged a violation of a civil rights. So what happened was apparently four months before Clarence Elkins' criminal trial began, a Barberton police officer arrested Earl Mann for robbery. As he was being handcuffed, Mann, who was apparently drunk and somewhat belligerent, said, why don't you charge me with the Judy Johnson murder? 
So this officer who arrested him was trained, like if you hear something or you find out something that the detective bureau should know about, put it in a memo. So this arresting officer writes this interdepartmental memo directed to the detective bureau and then goes on with his life. This memo was never disclosed to Clarence Elkin's attorneys, which they had an obligation to do. Anyway, the officers testified that they never saw the memo. It was either lost, discarded, destroyed, you know, that kind of thing. It turns out it was the only document alleged to have been lost, discarded, or destroyed. Anyway, so this document was referred to in newspaper reports as the man memo. And because of that, the city of Barberton agreed to pay a significant settlement. On April 18th, 2008, over 10 years after the death of Judith Johnson, Earl Mann pleaded guilty to the rape and murder charges to avoid the death penalty. At sentencing, Clarence Elkins said, You are not going to take anything from my family ever again. You're a coward, Earl Mann. That's how I'm going to end this chapter of my life. Brooke, who was then 16 years old, expressed similar sentiments. She was quoted as saying, I think you are such a coward. I was only six years old. What could I have done to you? What could my grandmother have done to you? How dare you prey on me and my grandmother when we had no means of fighting back? According to journalist Matt Young, Melinda said, I couldn't have lived with myself if I hadn't tried to find out who did this to my mom. I wanted the person who did this to pay for what they did. I felt for a long time that she wasn't at peace. There's not a minute that goes by that I don't think of my mother. Earl Mann was given 55 years to life and is serving time at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. He will be eligible for parole in 2064. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. Make her stop singing. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Downloads. <laughs> Download. Listen. Delete. delete. <laughs>